Well, in Matthew 19, beginning in verse 8, Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Well, this morning, I want to cut right to the chase. I'm just going to spit it right out. Most couples who get divorced do so not because of incompatibility or irreconcilable differences or communication difficulties or financial pressures or even sexual dysfunctions. There is a far more basic problem. Husbands and wives are just plain hard-hearted. Married people tend to get stubborn. They grow proud and become obstinate. Some spouses insist on getting things their own way, and when they don't, they split. Hey, don't get upset with me. I didn't say it. This is what Jesus concludes in the text that we've just read, and he is the one who knows our hearts and created marriage. When the Pharisees asked Jesus about Moses' instructions on divorce, he tells them, Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of people's hearts. Guys, there would be no such thing as divorce if it were not for hard hearts. I believe every marital problem, when whittled down to its core, is a problem of the heart. A stubbornness, a selfishness, a pride. A resistance to change gets in the way of what it takes to keep the marriage alive. It's plain hard-heartedness. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 7, the Jews reference Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Moses regulates divorce. The Jews assumed that his rules favored divorce, but just the opposite was true. God's law formalized a procedure that made divorce more difficult to obtain. You see, prior to the law, all divorces were no fault, just free and easy. A man got tired of his wife, and all he had to do was just send her packing. Moses required that he first obtain a certificate, which would force him to visit the elders of the city. This created a cooling-off period. It required public exposure and some accountability. Now the person seeking the divorce, he has to think. Can our problems really be worked out? Do I want the public embarrassment of admitting to a failed marriage? You see, because of the time delay, rash judgments could be avoided. You see, the law of Moses instilled cautions. It made it more difficult to get divorced. Moses' requirements for divorce were intended to discourage it, not promote it. The instructions in the law were more of a concession than a command. You see, God knows the pain and damage caused by divorce. It shatters hearts and it bruises kids. And this is why God hates it so. Malachi said to the Jews of his day, The Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. Notice here, God sees divorce as an act of violence. The Hebrew word translated divorce actually implies an amputation. The meaning of the root word is hewing off or a cutting apart. Author C.S. Lewis said this about divorce. He said, Christians 
all regard divorce as something like cutting up a living body. It's kind of a surgical procedure. Some think that the operation is so violent that it cannot be done at all. Others admit that it is a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership. And this is why God hates divorce. Hear ye, hear ye. God never, ever condoned divorce. It was never a part of His divine plan. In verse 8, Jesus is clear, from the beginning it was not so. This is why Jesus takes us back to creation. When God made marriage, He designed it for one man and for one woman to live together for a lifetime. Earlier here in verse 5 of Matthew 19, it records God's pronouncement in Genesis. He said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus adds, So then, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, here's the problem. God's ideal was interrupted by man's ordeal. God's pronouncement on marriage came in Genesis chapter 2. But you know what happened in chapter 3. Satan dangles the forbidden fruit to Adam and Eve. The first couple bit, and suddenly all of life, including marriage, was plunged into the chaos and pain and tragedy of sin. A wrench was thrown into holy matrimony. God knew that sin, selfishness, and stubbornness, and pride would cause some husbands and some wives to grow so hard-hearted that if divorce wasn't tolerated, couples would end up killing each other. God didn't want marriage to result in murder, and so He put up with what He had always hated and still does, divorce. Yep, the leading nemesis of marriage is a hard-hearted honey. Miranda Lambert has written a country song about a wife's plan to greet her husband. It could be a commentary on this morning's passage. It's called Gunpowder and Lead. Here's the chorus. I'm going home, going to load my shotgun, wait by the door and light a cigarette. If he wants a fight, well, now he's got one, and he ain't seen me crazy yet. He slapped my face and shook me like a rag doll. Don't that sound like a real man? I'm going to show him what little girls are made of. Gunpowder and lead. Boy, it's tragic. But marriage can come to that, can it? And even though God hates divorce, if a marriage has to end, He still prefers divorce to gunpowder and lead. With the war on terrorism, the CIA recently hired a special assassin. You may have heard about this. Something about a new assignment up in the hills of Pakistan. There were thousands of patriotic applicants, but they were sorted down to to three final candidates. Two men and one lady. Well, they brought the first man into the room. They, They pointed to the door and they said, Sir, a good assassin has to follow instructions no matter the consequences. We're looking for a cold blooded, calloused killer and we need to put you to the test. Behind that door there, you'll find your wife sitting in a metal chair. Now take this gun and go in there and kill her. Well, the man kind of balked. 
got to be kidding. There, there's no way. There's no way that I could hurt my wife. They, they turned to him and they said, well, we're sorry, but, but obviously this, this is not a job for you. Next, the second man, he tried. He, he actually took the gun. He walked over to the door. And his hand was trembling and tears started rolling down his cheeks. And after a few long seconds, he finally he gave up. He handed the gun back to the interviewer and he said, man, he said, I guess I'm just, I'm just not the man for the job. Well, finally, they, they brought the woman into the room. They explained to her that her husband was behind the door, sitting in the metal chair. And she was handed the gun, and she was told she needed to go in and kill him. Well, she calmly walks over. She opens the door. She walks into the room. Immediately, you hear the gunfire. Dozens of shots ring out. And then you hear some crashing and some banging and some screaming. Well, finally, the door swings open, and there stands this woman, and and she wipes the sweat off her forehead, and she says to the CIA agent, she says, Man, you didn't tell me that gun was loaded in blanks. I had to beat him to death with the chair. Hey, that woman, she's one hard-hearted honey. And let me say, there are plenty of men who are just as cold and just as calloused and just as stubborn. Reminds me of the two farms in Alberta, Canada. You can go there. You can see this today. There's two farms. They're side by side. And between them, there are two parallel fences running for a mile and a half, just two feet apart. What's with that? Why two fences when just one would do? Well, it seems that Paul, the owner of one farm, he wanted to build a fence between the two spreads and split the cost with Oscar, the owner of the other farm. Oscar, though, he didn't want to contribute. He was a bit of a tightwad. And so Paul, he built the fence himself. And and yet once the fence was complete, Oscar said to Paul, he said, well, looks like we have a fence. Paul responded, we... No way. That's my fence. And I built that fence two feet onto my property. And if I ever see one of your cows grazing on my two feet of grass, I'm going to shoot your cow. Well, eventually Oscar needed the field next to Paul's to graze his cattle. And so he was forced to build another fence. And today, both Oscar and Paul are gone. But their parallel fences are a memorial to the hard-heartedness of the male species. Well, we might as well admit it. Hard-heartedness doesn't affect one gender any more than the other. It's capable of affecting men and women alike. There's another country song that has a line in it. It goes like this. You're so cold, I'm turning blue. That's what happens in many a marriage. A chill settles in over a red-hot romance. The relationship goes from chilled to frosty. Eventually, it becomes an iceberg. Both husbands and wives can become plain hard-hearted. It's amazing how cozy couples can become hard-hearted honeys. You know, usually a couple starts out with a sensitivity. They're aware of each other's needs. They're kind and caring and considerate to one another. Both partners go out of their way to be understanding and to take time to listen. You know, engaged couples even admit their mistakes. And they try to better themselves. It's not until after the wedding that you discover the spouse that you thought was Mr. or Mrs. Wright had a first name. Always. You married always right. 
You see, as the marriage goes, spouses tend to grow more stubborn rather than more sensitive. And all kinds of things can happen in a marriage to produce a hard heart. Distraction and neglect and harsh words and criticism and irresponsibility and forgetfulness and hurt feelings and failures to communicate and apathy and misunderstandings an unwillingness to confess, an unwillingness to forgive. They all can drive a wedge between a husband and a wife. Spouses start to keep score. Resentment builds. Bitterness sets in. To protect yourself from more and more hurt, you start to tell yourself that you don't care. And before long, you begin to believe it. And you end up really not caring. When that happens... You have developed a hard heart. Once there was a man who came to see his pastor about his troubled marriage. The pastor opened his Bible and he took the man to Ephesians 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. But the man said, Pastor, I really don't love my wife anymore. Well, the pastor then flipped over to John 13 verse 35. He read the words of Jesus. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He says at least you can love her as another believer. The man said, but pastor, we don't even like each other. Well, the pastor was frantic. He he turned over to Matthew chapter 22 verse 29. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. He, He said, well, you can love her like a neighbor. The, the, the man said, Pastor, you don't understand. We hate each other. And that hit, that was it. It clicked the, the, his mind. And so he flipped over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, and he told the man, he said, look at this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, it's sad when a marriage gets to the point where it needs Matthew 5, verse 44. You know, in a Russian wedding, the best man serves a more important function than he does in an American wedding. In America, the best man just holds the ring. That's about it. In Russia, though, when the wedding is over, the best man has to sign a personal guarantee that the union between the husband and the wife is going to last at least six months. And if the marriage doesn't make it six months, the best man has to pay a fine. 150 rubles. Personally, I like the idea. I think we should import it to America. You know, a lot of couples would do well to get some outside support. To have an objective third party looking out for the longevity of their marriage. And I can think of no better best man for your marriage than Jesus Christ. He is the best, best man I know. Hey, if you haven't yet done so, let me encourage you to make Jesus the best man in your marriage. You see, Jesus alone has the ability to prevent a hard heart. I want you to consider this morning three steps that Jesus has taken to protect your marriage from hard-heartedness. First, he set an example. Second, he stirs up forgiveness. And then third, he supplies us with power. And here's our part. If you don't want to be a hard-hearted honey, if you want to avoid a hardness in your marriage, then you need to follow Jesus' example and empathize. You need to obey His stirrings and forgive. And you need to seek 
His power through prayer. Here's how to protect your marriage. Empathize and forgive and pray. The first step you need to take to protect your marriage from the deep freeze is to place a high value on empathy. You see, a little compassion in marriage goes a long, long way. And Jesus sets the example. This is what the incarnation is all about. In the person of Jesus, God put himself in human shoes. He stepped out of his comfort in heaven. He permanently chained himself to our plight. He came to feel our hurts and experience our joys and understand firsthand our predicament. You see, a surgeon was once discussing a case with a class of prospective medical students. He quizzed the aspiring doctors. He said, the muscle in the patient's right leg has contracted until the right leg is now shorter than the left leg. Therefore, the patient limps. What would you do in such circumstances? One young man, he raised his hand and he said, well, I'd limp too. You know, I'm not sure the professor recognized it at the time, but that young man is going to make for an outstanding doctor. For good doctors require empathy. They need to feel their patient's pain. They need to be able to put themselves in their patient's situation. And this is also what makes for a good marriage. A man and a woman who are willing to take time to listen, to understand their spouse's perspective, will go a long way toward protecting their marriage. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter encourages husbands to dwell with your wife with understanding. Marriage is a task that requires taking notes. You've got to pay attention. I've heard it put this way. To have a successful marriage, you have to pay attention to three things. What makes your spouse tick, what ticks them off, and what tickles them. Too many of us men are like bulls in a china shop. We run roughshod over our wife's feelings. We forget that talking is a necessary form of communication. One particular husband, he he picked up the remote control, and then he turned to his wife and said, Honey, anything you want to say to me before football season starts? But you know, the same applies to wives. A wife can forget her husband's needs. She can get so wrapped up in the kids that she puts the hubby on the back burner. Ladies, he's not just a father and a provider and a mechanic and a handyman. He's a person too. You know, I've met wives who complain about their demanding husbands. They wish he would cut them some slack, give them the benefit of the doubt, love them with no strings attached, while at the same time they're expecting perfection out of him. Both husbands and wives need to lighten up and show some empathy. You know, a Harvard University study revealed that the average married couple spends 37 minutes in communication. Now, that's not 37 minutes a day. That's 37 minutes a week in communication. The average couple. On a recent flight, I picked up one of those Delta magazines. And it had a report in it on the habits of pet owners. And it said that the average dog owner talks two hours a week to his dog? That means that we talk more to our dog than we do to our spouse? 
Did you hear about the couple that called their friends to see what they were doing one night? Her girlfriend replied, he said, well, we're just sitting here drinking our coffee together and talking. Well, when the woman hung up, she turned to her husband and she asked, she said, why don't we ever just sit around, drink coffee and talk to each other? Her husband said, well, why don't we do that? I'll put on a pot of coffee. Well, before long, they were sitting there. They were just looking at each other. They were sipping on their their cup of coffee, staring at each other in silence. And so finally, the husband, he turns to his wife and he says, honey, why don't you call your friends back and find out what they were talking about? (laughs) Hey, but at least they were trying, okay? Husbands and wives both need to remember that we can't walk together if we don't talk together. Here's the point. Care. Show some concern. Show some empathy. If you want to protect your marriage from hard-heartedness, the first step to take is to be like Jesus and empathize. The second step to take is to practice forgiveness. Here again, Jesus sets the pace. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4 verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. You know, we read that and we think, how nice. We're supposed to forgive. Hey, let's forgive. And then we ignore it when it comes to our husband or our wife. But listen to the rest of what Paul says. Forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Oh my, that last phrase there makes it personal, makes it inescapable. Boy, I rejoice over the fact that Jesus has forgiven me. He's forgiven me fully and freely. I admit I would be nowhere if it were not for His forgiveness. I'm so thankful for His forgiveness. But now He says to me, I need to forgive others the way He has forgiven me. And that begins with my spouse. If Jesus has forgiven you, then you need to forgive your spouse. You know, Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15, there at the close of His model prayer, Jesus adds these words, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We don't often apply that to marriage, but why not? Why shouldn't we? You know, it's been said, every marriage is made up of two sinners. A good marriage is made up of two forgivers. Hard-heartedness takes over a marriage when a husband or a wife reach a point where they're no longer willing to forgive. Remember the chapter and the verse divisions in your Bible were not in the original text. They were later inventions to help us locate and reference specific passages. That means that Matthew 19 is actually a continuation of chapter 18. And if you'll notice, the last half of chapter 18 deals with this subject of forgiveness. Hey, Jesus' teaching on divorce and marriage were prefaced by a lesson on the importance of forgiveness. That's, That's no coincidence. In fact, in verse 21 of Matthew 18, Peter asked Jesus a question. He says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And old Peter thought he was being a really good guy. He was really being generous. For the Jewish rabbis taught that you were to forgive your brother two, maybe at the most three times. Peter says, I'll go seven times. I'll go above and beyond the call of duty. But Jesus answers him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 
In other words, Peter, if you're counting, you're missing the point. God places no limits on his forgiveness. He always forgives a repentant heart. Thus, we should forgive others to the same degree that we've been forgiven. You know, Jesus even tells a parable that hammers home this point. A man forgives his servant millions of dollars, but the servant in turn won't turn around and forgive his debtor a few bucks. Now apply that to our marriages. God is willing to forgive me millions of dollars, and I can't forgive Kathy a buck and change? Read the parable. The man's unforgiving heart ends up costing him dearly. And nothing will cost your marriage more dearly than an unwillingness to forgive. You protect your marriage from hard-heartedness by remembering the way the Lord has forgiven you then extending that same forgiveness to your spouse. And there's a third step you take to guard your marriage against hard-heartedness. In fact, if you're already in a hard-hearted marriage, pay attention to this final point. You pray. You need to pray. You need to seek Jesus' power in your life. For understand this. Jesus alone has the power to make hard hearts soft again. In chapter 19, verse 8, Jesus says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But in verse 9, he says, But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Oh boy. Jesus ups the ante. He raises the expectation for marriage partners. You see, the old covenant's tolerance for divorce vanishes in the light of the work of Jesus. In the Old Testament, God allowed for divorce because He didn't want marriage to end in bloodshed, gunpowder, and lead. Moses and the law lacked the power to soften a hard heart. In the Old Testament, the only way out of a bad marriage was divorce or murder. But today, that's no longer the case. For Jesus has come. And this is why Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus says that because he can prevent a hard heart. Jesus can transform hard hearts. His love is a tenderizer. It's a heart tenderizer. You see, today, the way out of a hard-hearted marriage is to give your heart to Jesus. Listen to what Jesus promises to do in the heart of a person who believes in Him. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. It tells us, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Only Jesus can do this. Only he can soften hard hearts. Jesus promises to take hearts that are hard as a rock and make them as soft as a baby's behind. It reminds me of the little boy in the first grade class. The teacher one day asked the students, he said, where is your heart? And that's when this one little boy pointed to his fanny. He said, my heart's down here. So she was curious. She said, what makes you say that? He replied, because every time I do something good, my grandma pats my bottom and says, bless your little heart. 
Hey, Jesus can make a hard heart as soft as a baby's bottom. Hey, let me tell you about the love of Jesus. Oh, it's so powerful. He is so powerful. If you've ever experienced it, you know. The love and glory and compassion and holiness of Jesus, it all has a way of combining to melt the human will into submission. It stirs up a willingness where there was none. His love fans a flame of hope from totally wet wood. It takes dry, coarse hearts and saturates them with His love until they become soft and pliable and absorbent again. It's amazing what He does. One summer, I I tried to dig some holes out in my backyard for some posts that I had. I was putting a soccer wall up for my son, Nick. Well, I got out my post hole diggers. And I took a few stabs at our good old Georgia red clay. And those metal blades, baby, they just bounced off of the hard soil. That ground was as hard as concrete. I'd have been better off trying to dig through concrete to put those post holes in. And so I got smart. I went down to the tool rental. And I got me some motorized post hole diggers. Fill those babies up with gasoline, pull that cord, and you got power. But after a few hours with those motorized post hole diggers, I wasn't even much further than I was with the regular, you know, handheld ones. Man, that soil was so hard. It was so solid. Those holes still weren't as deep as I wanted them to be. Finally, I went inside to get a glass of water, and Kathy asked me, she said, Honey, have you ever thought about just taking the water hose and and just setting it out there and watering down the ground there for a little bit and and then try digging the post holes? Well, after $75 and all day with those motorized post hole diggers, I kind of threw them down and, and took her suggestion. And as usual, it worked, much to my chagrin. You know, we look at the hardness of a spouse's heart. Hey, even the hardness of our own heart. And we think there's no hope. Man, man, our hearts have become like Georgia red clay. The ground is just too hard. But then Jesus comes. And He saturates that hard heart with living water. His love can make hard hearts soft again. And so let me ask you, have you prayed about your marriage? Have you asked the Lord to change your heart and then your spouse's heart? Jesus wants to send His Holy Spirit to work a miracle in your marriage. Our part is to always show empathy. And to make forgiveness a habit. And to be willing to pray. You know, a couple of years ago, Glenn, a man named Glenn Wolf died in Los Angeles in a nursing home. He was 88 years old. And though he had left behind several children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, no one came to claim his body. In fact, the city had to pay for his burial in an unmarked grave. But what made Glenn's case so unusual was that he held a world record. 
In fact, the Guinness Book of Records recognizes Glenn Wolf as the most married man. He has been married and divorced 29 times. Apparently, Glenn spent his whole life looking for love. And yet, in the end, no one loved him enough to give his dead body a decent burial. I wish we'd realize that divorce is not the answer. The best way to find love is not by swapping spouses, but by sticking with the one you've got and making it work, hanging in there and resolving problems and learning to love and refusing to harden your heart. Moses and the law could reveal a heart. It could convict a heart. It could even condemn a heart. But it could never soften a heart. And that's why the old covenant tolerated divorce. Instead, Jesus specializes in tenderizing hard hearts. There is a way out of a bad marriage. And it's not divorce. You and your spouse can give your hearts to Jesus. And watch him do a miracle. In your marriage, empathize, forgive, and pray. It is the cure for hard-hearted honeys. Father, thank you for your love for us and for your love for our marriages. You have high hopes for us. And though we may have given up, you have not. You have not. And this morning, Lord, You see our marriage with great hope and with great possibilities for you know the power that you possess to soften and to tenderize and to reignite love where it had become dark and cold and wet embers. You can refan the flame. Lord, help us to show a little empathy, to, to offer a little forgiveness, to say a prayer, to just crack the door open so that your spirit can get into our marriage and do a miracle. I believe that's your desire this morning in many, many marriages. We ask that you help us and bless us, Lord. We love you. We want all of our lives to glorify you, including our marriage. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.